0: Welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we're discussing the finale of this winter's biggest show, HBO's Big Little Lies. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz.
1: Hello, Gazelle. Hi,
0: Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. Hi, hey, Jen. Jen. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so we were feeling inspired by the very elaborate. Elvis and Audrey costume party in the Big Little Lies finale. If you've seen it, I don't know. Is is this a thing where people dress up as Elvis and Audrey, or is this? a I Big think Little this Lies is thing? unique to the. To okay, the show. I've never heard of something it kind of a like random,
2: this. Random choice of
0: people. two people, yeah. Uh, so yeah, like
2: if, Elvis and Anne Margaret. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Cary Grant, like, all right, but
1: yeah,
0: right. If you haven't seen the finale in which case you shouldn't be really listening to this but if you haven't and you just want to listen to the prompt um the party is one in which the men all dress as elvis and the woman as audrey hepburn and they all have different choices of like which audrey breakfast at tiffany's audrey right my fair lady audrey
1: roman holiday audrey
0: yes but before we kick things off we and get into you know the more serious big little lies business we thought we would start off with a lighter prompt which is what is your favorite tv costume party jen do you want to start us off this time
2: sure so this is not necessarily one of my favorite like episodes of Gilmore girls But I immediately thought of the episode where um, Rory goes to the Tarantino party because it's the most obvious thing that I could think of to Big Little Lies. (laughs) And so everybody's dressed as a different Tarantino character. And you're trying to figure out like who's who and kind of really closely watching the party. I think she went as Go-Go from um, Kill Bill Volume Mm -hmm. 1 and... Uh, Logan was Bruce Willis's character in Pulp Fiction, and I was just like, I want to go to that party. That party seems cool.
1: Well, 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 the gang's all here. Robert, good to see you. Hello, Logan. Rory, like the costume? I like your too. This is Whitney. Whitney, Robert, Rory, you know Colin. Hi. Whitney, is your friend Josie here? Yeah, she's over there with the guy dressed like Harvey Weinstein. Perfect. I'll see you later. Leave her alone, Colin. Yes, yes, of course. So, good party, huh? Seems like it.
2: Music's cool.
1: Very cool. Well, we're just heading over to the bar. Can we get you to anything? No, we're just going to take a look around. Okay, we'll catch you later. Sounds
2: good. So that was that was my favorite that came to mind. That is a cool one. Then that's
0: also good because it's a specific theme where right. the ones that came to mind for me most are Halloween puppies mm-hmm. because right. that's an obvious one. Right, um, right. But so mine is... From the TV show Felicity, mm-hmm. which in the first season in kind of early on, one, one of kind of the most heartbreaking moments is when after Felicity starts to kind of connect with Ben for the first time, which it, which happens after they both get mugged at his apartment together. They start spending more time together, and they decide to go to this Halloween party together dressed as Frankenstein and The Bride of Frankenstein. And then Felicity shows up and dressed as The Bride of Frankenstein, and Ben is not dressed up as Frankenstein. He's dressed up as someone from the Rat Pack.
2: I thought we had a plan, you know, you were going to go as Frankenstein. Yeah, Sean decided we should all go as the Rat Pack. He's Frank Sinatra, and I'm Peter Lawford or something. Hey,
0: Courtney Love, right? And it's just devastating for her. And she ends up crying on Noel's shoulder and throwing up on him, which just perfectly encapsulates their whole relationship (laughs) is her throwing up all over Noel. Um, But I just felt like it was such a great like this college costume party is this, this great way. They used it to express a lot of emotions that were going on, which is it encapsulates that feeling of being a freshman in college and caring too much about this guy who cares just too little and you're putting too much meaning onto everything and then you end up embarrassed and feeling lost and dressed up as the bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> oh
2: man, I've been there many times. <laughs>
0: Matt's, Matt, what's your uh, choice? Uh,
1: well, the one that sprung to mind uh, for me was uh, from the season three episode of Mad Men, uh, my old Kentucky home, which is an antebellum. It's like a traditional, uh, uh, Derby Days uh, party, uh, and uh, uh, it's in the tradition of the antebellum South, and it's like in this season that's very much about the decline of the American empire. Mm -hmm. And the highlight, if indeed you want to call it that, is uh, Roger Sterling uh, singing the song uh, My Old Kentucky Home uh, in blackface. Oh, my God. In blackface, which is like I could not even believe what I was seeing, and it was so perfect for that 1963 upper middle class to wealthy sort of bubble. Mm-hmm. that so much of the show unfurls in and uh, and also just the way the entire, the, the estate that it takes place on is really a great uh, just atmospheric place and my
2: old Kentucky home good
1: night. I did this at home for her with a little shoe polish, she thought it was a scream <laughs> I love it <laughs> mm. weep no
2: more
0: Yeah, I can't remember what other people were. Were they just dressed up kind of as regular people from?
1: They most yeah. of them were, but others were kind of going for kind of a retro, a kind of a Confederate Southern sort of vibe. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, Mad Men—that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, didn't expect that one. <laughs> well, you know,
1: you'll find I'm full of surprises, Mister Bond. <laughs>
0: So that is this week's prompt. Listeners, if you would like to weigh in on this week's prompt or suggest a future one, email us at tvquestions at com. Next up, we're talking Big Little Lies. We'll be right back. So I'm both very excited and sad to be discussing the Big Little Lies (laughs) finale, (laughs) which, you know, I think for a lot of us it's been... One of the best shows on this year. And it kind of gives you everything you could want out of a show, with which is depth and humor and artistry and just these phenomenal performances by amazing actresses and actors. Um, and it was also kind of the rare instance of a TV series with the perfect number of episodes. It took seven episodes to tell the story. So that's how many they use. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to just unpack in this finale episode. Yeah. So... Let's just jump in, I guess. The episode opens, you know, our recapper described it as kind of like a horror movie, which is the camera zooms in on this air conditioning vent and all you hear is gasping and crying and then of course you see Celeste on her bathroom floor and right. after another beating from Perry and this time it feels a little different because she's not fighting back. She's kind of just huddled on the floor. You she seems broken um and yeah i think that's i mean if you hadn't already thought that the show was going to end with perry being the one who was killed i I feel like this opening kind of signals that
1: yeah
2: it also just the use of that vent and the fact that we are able to hear it from clearly another room in the house is telling you their boys know what's going on yes right absorbed this
1: Mm -hmm.
2: yes that's important too
1: definitely That made a lot of sense to me when it was revealed that it was one of their sons who was uh, abusing um, Amabella.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you, And especially with the language, like he's obviously told her that he's going to kill her dead. And that's language that you've heard Perry use. Yes. He very much seems to be mimicking his father's behaviors. Right. Our colleague Catherine Van Arendonk was saying how the show, like one of the things that I agree with, which is that the show kind of allowed this domestic violence storyline to play out independent of the murder. And so it didn't feel Mm -hmm. like it was turned into this sort of spectacle, which I really thought was smart. Like, even though, like, you may have suspected that Perry was going to be the one who was killed in the end, you still were, it was still respected, that story, as its own thing. It never kind of made you think of it as as a mystery, you know? It just treated it as... A separate story that happened that by the end obviously converges with the murder plot line, but at that point it feels very organic because, of course, it had to be Perry.
1: Are we supposed to interpret that moment where Jane looks at, um, where Jane looks at Perry and sees her attacker as literally that's the same guy? Yes. You think yes. so? Yes. You think that's not like a, a subjective.
0: Well, you know, that's...
1: Because that part of it felt a little contrived to me. I mean, not not enough to detract from how great I think the show is. But that was like, really? In the last 10 minutes, you're going to do this? You know?
0: I think they deliberately never showed those two in a scene together. Yeah. And then I was racking my brain
1: trying to figure out if they'd ever been in a scene together. And I guess they hadn't.
0: And also, it's based on a book. And that's the case in the book. So, Uh I mean, I think... Well, I do think that the show... One of the interesting things about the finale is how much it chooses to not explicitly tell you. Yeah. So, you know, I hadn't... To me, it seemed like he's definitely the one who was
1: her attacker. But... I'm glad she didn't kill that other guy.
0: I
2: know. That was
1: That was a close one. Woo! Yeah.
2: Yeah, but... I mean, that moment worked for me, and what was interesting, too, is there's that moment where they, they close in on Shailene Woodley's face, and she... She jolts like she has a physical mm-hmm. like jump uh, yeah when she finally sees him and and it <clears> takes her a second because he's dressed as Elvis but then she realizes it and it 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 mimics what happens a few scenes earlier when she goes to tell Celeste uh that one of her sons is responsible for hurting Amabella and she makes a comment about you know with his dad it could be in his DNA and Nicole Kidman's reaction is she physically jumps in the very same way right uh and I just thought that was an interesting so when it when it happens with her, I was like, Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And the way and I thought the way they I, I like that they didn't explain it. That you could just see the the women, her and and Witherspoon and Kidman looking at each other and all kind of putting the pieces together at one moment. And then even in Skarsgard's eyes, you could see him going, I think I recognize her. This is yeah, that. Right. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. I thought they did that really well. I think I
0: I agree and I think I that's what I liked about a lot of this episode is how much of it plays out in silence without them telling you anything just from the actual you know this murder scene that we're talking about to celeste remember she's walking through the apartment that she's bought and she's remembering her husband beating Mm -hmm. her earlier that day the facial expressions of reese watching ed sing celeste and perry kind of just meeting each other's eyes when she realizes when he tells her about the text from the property manager they don't discuss it they just look at each other you know she even scenes where, like, Bonnie sees Perry manhandling Celeste and recognizes something is going on, or Nicole Kidman walking through the party, kind of desperately searching for someone, and you know all yes. these things—it almost like a lot of the episode actually was quite silent.
1: And yes, well, and it also tells that, you so much that amazing to... moment at the party where uh, that that amazing moment at the party where uh, Bonnie is looking at uh, Celeste and Perry and sees him manhandling her from yes, a distance exactly. from a distance and it's all from her perspective like physically from her perspective like you're seeing it like the camera's zoomed in from across the room and they're very small in the frame and uh that was just a great scene there's a lot of great filmmaking on the show and i have to say I want to single out the editing on the show by David Berman, Maxime, LaHale, Sylvain, LaBelle, and Jim Vega. Those are the four people who are credited. It's extraordinary. It's really extraordinary. And it reminds me of these kind of – these sort of European art house movies from the 60s and, this, and the American 1970s films that sort of took lessons from them and things like like The Pawn – it probably starts with Hiroshima Mon but like The Pawnbroker and don't Look Now and The Man Who Fell to Earth and Bob Fosse's films and uh, there's a tradition of this kind of thing. In The Limey, uh, a lot of Soderbergh's movies are edited this way where the chronology is jumbled up and it's more like – human thought it's like the way that your brain works during the day like during the day we're not always in the present moment we're not always in this moment and this is the only moment that we're in we're like we're in this moment but then something happens and we think oh this thing coming up two weeks this meeting that i have i wonder what that's going to be like and then you imagine it and then you might remember if that might trigger some other association and the synapses in your brain are firing all the time like everybody is this way and you never see stories told in movies or television this way once in a great while you do Mm-hmm. And that's what this show is doing, and it's not, and what's unusual about it is it's not a single perspective. like it's not concentrating mainly on one character, and like that represents their mind, and then you go outside of it and everything is flat and linear. They're doing it they're they're doing it. it's almost like a third person omniscient novel in the way that it feels the freedom to go into people's heads. And one of the things that knocked me out the most about the editing on this show is, the way that it deals with trauma, and often it will show you a piece of trauma, or it will show you the beginning, and then it'll cut away from the worst part of it, and then it'll give you the aftermath. And then you'll think, well, maybe they're going to spare us and not show us the worst part, but then they do. But they don't immerse you in it, and they have like loud – you know, particularly the domestic violence scenes, that moment where Nicole Kidman is um, setting up the apartment where she's going to go live with her kids – And you see these flash cuts of that beating that she received where she ended up on the bathroom floor. It's silent, and you only see like a second or two of it at a time. But it's like the effect is psychologically like we are seeing things that she has repressed. It's like the return of the repressed trauma. And it's not just the editors being fancy. There's a reason for it. You know, there's a really intelligent, really well-thought-out reason for why things are edited in this way. It's great. It's just great.
2: And you never it, – it's all so very clear as well. Like you're never confused at, at any moment by what's happening because it's so well done that that you just – you're completely going with the flow and, it, and it's just
0: perfect. Right. It's like the opposite of what we've become used to in prestige television, which is that you just never know what's going on. <laughs> like it's actually smart editing. <laughs> That's where true. That's It's true. telling you what's going on but not too much.
1: No, and, and there are moments where you are confused but on purpose. The dialogue is just – Really well-written. David E. Kelly,
0: amazing. So it's, it's just a well-written show. But the way they used it in this finale, they kind of used it very strategically to amp up the tension at certain moments where, you know, the silence was used to amp up tension. But then you also have this scene where Celeste and Perry are in a car together and she's telling him why she's going to leave him. And you need to hear that said because that is where you're thinking, what is he going to do now? Like, how is he going to respond to these words? Right. So it feels like they really use it in a very deliberate way to, in terms of the pacing of the entire episode. Yeah.
2: And they, there's so many red herrings that they throw in. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I love say, that. You know, I, I watched the show, and I was never watching it because I'm like, I'm dying to find out who who was murdered and who mm-hmm. did it. I mean, sure, I was curious, but that was not what was driving my interest and my enjoyment, But in this episode, I was like, I need to know what happened. Like, they were just building it up so much that I got really invested in in figuring it out. And, yeah, there were all these, like, clues and just funny things they would throw in. There's that line, which was my favorite line in the entire um, episode when Laura Dern's getting ready (laughs) beforehand. And she says, if I get shot in the head tonight, half these moms are going to say, what? She couldn't bother herself to duck? (laughs) (laughs) I love that line.
1: Um, That was great.
2: It's a great line, uh, and and then it makes you think, well, oh, maybe she will get shot in the head, and then just everything, like, even Gordon, <laughs> like, pointing, like, finger finger pistols at, uh, at Tom from the hospital.
1: I was going to mention that, because that was that was a uh, very uh, menacing. It was very menacing. Yeah. Like, it was a jocular thing. It's a thing that Wait, guys do, do at, the at the party. At the party. Yeah. Because he
2: had already said he was going to, you know— Bring trouble to his business. They were Mm -hmm. odds after he threatened
1: them. But I'm a lot more sensitive about that finger point gun motion than I used to be because it's just you know the epidemic of gun violence in this country has been going on my entire life and it never seems to stop and like and I'm I'm more aware of like these casual things that we say like shoot me now. You know, or like mm-hmm. people making the, fing- fing- the finger guns at each other. And it's like, you know, that's that's like a violent. That's a violent motion. And we don't think about it. But in this context, I got a chill when he did that. And, and it was also because this story is so much about finding out the violence that people are capable of that you often would never imagine that they were capable mm-hmm. of. You know, and it's a, and a, and a really there's a lot. And it's not just the, you know, the whole uh, the whole Nicole Kidman Plot, which really that's the the core of the show, in my opinion. But there's a lot of other sort of subplots that are dealing with that, including you know the, you know the kids, you know and and you know who's committing this abuse and and uh, and also the the way that the uh, at least in the first uh, half of the show, like the way the sort of emotional violence that's inflicted on these women by each other in the name of jockeying for position at the school or within their community. You know, that's something else that the show explores it Like oh, like, viol- sure. you know, there's different kinds of violence and it doesn't it's not all physical. Like there's there's little, you know, microaggressions that occur every single day that we just accept as the way we relate to each other.
0: Yeah, it's really quite remarkable in the way it shows kind of the complexity of women and, you know, in our ability to. To vilify each other in these ways, but also, you know, to really have each other's backs as we see in the end of the episode when they all come together, which it kind of bookends it in this amazing way where it shows, you know, these women might seem to hate each other and behave that way. But in the end, you know, when this man is violently attacking one of them, they're all kind of united in this way. right? And yeah. Yeah, I just I thought it it did it it navigated all that really skillfully. It
1: reminded me actually of the uh, it was like a wolf pack taking down a tiger. Yeah, you know there was something very primordial about that whole scene, and also the way it was edited. You know, I was sort of on the fence about the way that that final burst of violence was edited. With you know again yeah, they with went the to the waves. That, with the waves. However, i I decided I liked it. I decided I liked it because it was a swing for the fences way. It's not the way I would have expected them to do it. You know, I mean, in a lot of HBO shows, HBO is known for dramas that are uh, violent, often vastly more violent than this. This is, you know, nothing compared to what they usually do. But often the the uh, when a scene like this is that they've been building towards it the entire season, they would prolong it and you would hear the yelling and the punching and the kicking and all of that stuff. And here they didn't do that. And it was very impressionistic. And the waves, the way that the waves were cut together with the motions of people's bodies Made it seem very elemental, and I liked it. You know, I, I I guess you could say, you know, I'm sure some people think it was like too much or too pretentious or something, but I just, I appreciated it. I just well, really appreciated that they did it that way. Yeah,
0: and it's, it's in a way, you know, I feel like it was a very conscientious choice because they're not trying to exploit this violence. That's true. You know? Right. And it's, it's also a theme that we've seen throughout the series where it cuts to the waves. So it doesn't feel out of nowhere either it's a theme it's a thematic thing that's happening it is throughout the series. and
1: also you know you look at the ocean and and the tide coming in and going out is 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 sort of built into the structure of the show so it, it does feel correct mm-hmm. that that this that when they're tying everything up at the end and there's this uh you know there's this eruption of violence which is met by an answering act of violence by these women who are basically expelling the the dangerous person from the tribe you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what's going on in this scene. Um, those waves, uh, it's like you're seeing the, you know, it's like the inevitable sort of rhythms of life. I know I sound like it's like 3 a.m. in the dorm room and I've had too many bong hits or something. <laughs> but, but that's what this show does to me when I watch it. Like, I, I i feel that my the synapses of my brain work differently when I watch a show like this than when I watch your usual linear A to B to C to D 13 episodes episodes then you're out kind of show, which is the vast majority of television drama is done that way. And this was not.
2: Yeah. Well, fun. I mean, I also think with the ocean stuff, I mean, again, it serves a purpose. And the ocean is this thing that's in their backyards that they kind of ignore. Hmm. Uh, and it's also, you know, the the storminess of, of the ocean and of their lives are something that they try to keep private, too. And so to bring it back and to have it very much in the forefront, like you can't ignore this anymore like that. Made sense to me from just a thematic point of view, in addition to the fact that it was beautifully edited.
1: And can we talk about the 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 therapy scenes? Yes, for a second, because yeah. that that is, you know, I've seen some very good depictions of therapy on television, rarely in movies. Rarely in movies. Even the good therapy scenes in movies, they they build to kind of an unrealistic ending, like you know, or like ordinary people in Good Will Hunting. I thought the the therapy scenes in that were great, but. They built to an epiphany at the end where it seemed like I don't think the movie meant to get to say this, actually. But I, but I think audiences come away thinking, OK, he's better now,
0: mm-hmm. which is not
1: how therapy works.
0: Right. And,
1: and uh, The Sopranos, I think The Sopranos, the handful of, of therapy scenes in Mad Men and uh, in Treatment, the whole series, you know, which was set in a therapist's office. That, that's probably the best I've seen offhand. But this stuff was on that level it was on that level and and one of the things that struck me so much about it was two things one is the way that um the way that celeste denies what's going on to herself mm-hmm. like she's not just, and it's interesting because there is a performance aspect that happens in therapy where like even people who won't, aren't aware of this or won't admit that they're doing it, when you go into therapy for the first time, it's like you're going out on a date and you're presenting the best possible version of yourself, like the intact, well-adjusted, I'm doing fine, I don't even know why I'm here kind of person. <laughs> and then when you sit there long enough, then you start to open up and you start to admit that no, things are really not okay. <laughs> and you see that happening with her, so you see that presentation happening, but when she comes back for that session on her own... The mm-hmm. second she walks in that door, like any therapist who is doing couples counseling and one of them shows up and the other one doesn't, that's when you know, like, yes, I was right. This is, there's some serious, serious problems in this marriage. And she goes from there. And then the other thing I love is seeing the therapist uh, played by Robin Weigert, who was so fantastic on Deadwood as a Calamity Jane and unrecognizable compared to this. Um, she steps out of her role. You know, that that sort of neutrality that therapists uh, present, there is a certain point, like when you think your your patients are in danger, you not only are, have permission, but in some cases an obligation to step out of that neutral, I'm Switzerland, I don't judge anyone role because yeah. you're trying to help somebody who might get killed, you know, and that's what's going on here. And And I love little details of the blocking. Like, I think it's the last session that they have together. They show Nicole Kidman entering the room. And she walks past the couch and and is almost in the therapist's office where her desk is. And then the conversation they have together is on the couch and the therapist is sitting on the couch with her. And normally she's been sitting across from her mm-hmm. that distance. And now it's like now she's not a therapist anymore. She's her friend who's trying to help her. And it's great. It's, and it's great. It's a subtle thing.
2: Yeah. But it really,
1: really like you read it, you feel it.
2: I also like how Celeste still, even at that point, is resistant and, and reluctant to admit certain things. Whenever she brings up the, the boys and that they must know, and that she's got to get them out of there, she's, she still will not accept that. And ultimately she does, because you see her make that phone call at the party and say, take the boys to this location, I'm going to tell you. But with the therapist, like there's a, it's like she very slowly starts to admit that things are wrong, but she'll, she'll get to a point and you can just see her hit hit a wall and she doesn't want to admit that things are that wrong you I see think that's a very
1: she you know, literally hit, she literally hits a wall she yeah
0: you, you can see her guilt at being here and feeling like she obviously does her feelings towards her husband are very complicated and she doesn't think he's a villain in every way you know she kind of compartmentalizes this aspect of their relationship so she feels this need to kind of defend him when she's faced with these questions from the therapist.
1: Yeah, and she's also because in defending him, she's defending her own judgment.
0: Yeah. You know, and like, like defending like, the uh, fact that this relationship can work with therapy. Whereas the therapist is kind of saying, you gotta get out of there. This isn't a salvageable relationship.
1: Yeah. I think I I I I've never studied the fine points of what a therapist does, but you know, having been on the other side of it. I've become convinced that a big part of therapy is getting people to admit that they've made a mistake, and it's and and you know you have to be so delicate about it, and it takes a really long time. Yeah. It takes a really long time to get someone to admit they made a mistake, and the inevitable uh, 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 pushback. Just you know, when you tell somebody like, that's what's happening when the therapist tells her like, essentially you got You got to get out of there. Things are only going to get worse, and he might he might kill you. And you got to take the kids and get out of there. It's like you made a mistake being with this guy in the first place, probably, but certainly staying with him as long as you did. And things are only things are not going to get any better. And you have to get out and like you have to get them to make the decision. You can't make the decision for them. They have to make the decision. And you really see that it's like water on a rock. Yeah. You know, that's how that's how hard it is to change somebody to the point where they can make a decision that big. That's a really big decision.
0: And Robin Weigert is so good at expressing so much just without saying anything as well, because there are so many scenes where she's just looking at Nicole Kidman and not saying anything, but you can read that she's thinking what she's thinking, like before she even tells her, you know, before but that moment where she starts to kind of slowly ask her if her husband beats her Yeah. and they haven't actually broached the subject yet. She's very, very delicately walking into that. Yes. And it's just yeah, those scenes are just incredible and getting her
1: and getting her to and getting her to come to the conclusion and admit that what she has with her husband is not violent sex, but it's rape. That's also a big part of it, you know, and also to see that. When she says, oh, you you know, she is married to a violent man. She says, well, I'm violent, too. And then there's that key moment in the finale where she says, you know, yes, I was also violent, but it was in response to your violence. Right. Like she is Defense. not a. Yeah, she's not a naturally violent or aggressive person in the way that he is. That's her adapting to living with that guy. Right. You know,
0: she's a, she's a strong person who's going to fight back. And yeah, yeah she's finally realizing that what did you what did you all think about the fact that bonnie Bonnie is the one who ends up killing Perry in the end?
2: that I, I didn't read the book um, mm-hmm. so and and I honestly didn't invest a lot of time in trying to sleuth out who who it might be. but I thought that was maybe the most surprising part of that whole sequence because mm-hmm. finding out it's Perry that's the rapist and finding out that he's the one who dies. that wasn't that surprising but then figuring out who was responsible and they do this really you know, tricky thing where they make you think it's Celeste for a second and then they make you think it's Jane and then here comes Bonnie bursting into it. And I liked it in the sense that she was always the most marginalized out of that group because of her rivalry with rivalry with Madeline and was never really welcomed into that circle. Uh, but yet her immediate gut reaction is to protect the herd and protect Celeste. And so I liked the idea of, of having this sort of outside figure... Seeing women in trouble and wanting to be there and help and and take that step. So I thought that was really interesting.
0: Yeah, I liked it, too. And I guess I haven't read the book either, but I guess in the book you get some backstory on Bonnie and how she was abused growing up oh i didn't okay i'm actually glad that they they didn't put that in the show because i felt like you didn't need it
1: Mm, yeah i know i didn't necessarily need that i wanted more development of her character yeah just period Mm -hmm. like i that that was one area in which there were a few you know my only major complaint about this show was were there were some characters that got short shrift and i don't think that they needed to get short shrift and i think that they i'm There were some moments where when they're cutting to the interviewees who are not the major characters, Mm -hmm. there were a few moments where that was funny. But there were many more moments where I felt like it broke the spell. It broke the momentum of the show and it felt a little cheesy to me.
0: It didn't seem that necessary. It seemed
1: corny and unnecessary. And I kind of wish they hadn't done it. I don't think the show ultimately needed it.
0: I can definitely fill in the blanks as a viewer as to like how this murder brought them all together and how they would end up on that beach. But I also would have liked to have seen more, partially because I, I just think it's interesting to navigate that element of the story and to just see that play out a little bit. Like, I just would have enjoyed watching that as a viewer, I think. Mm.
2: Um, I don't know. I did, I, I, it worked for me fine. I didn't have yeah. a problem with that. it's. A, it would I thought interesting to know about Bonnie's, whatever her issues were, but at that point, I don't know. It, it might have seemed tacked on for them to have it. I don't think I wanted yeah. it to deal with her issues. I think I just I think
0: for a finale, you know, that it made sense for them to not spend all this time showing you how these women have kind of come right. together. Right. But you know, if we had another episode, I, I would have taken it. This is a rare <laughs> this is a rare case uh, yeah, where I would have I, I wanted I, the show
1: to be longer. That doesn't happen very often. <laughs> it really doesn't.
0: Yeah. I also just wanted to briefly touch on how funny this show is because we've been so serious. Yeah. Um, I thought it was well. A like we were talking about all the red hair, red herrings, which I thought was actually like those were did a good job of lightening the mood of mixing this kind of terror with humor. Like when yeah. Laura Dern says, "If I'm shot in the head tonight, it's a laugh line," yeah. which is kind of like amazing how they're able to to uh, balance those two elements. And then you know, obviously. Reese Witherspoon gets the best lines on this show, and her character is the funniest. But she's great. She's amazing. And I thought it was, I thought one of the funniest parts of this episode were the singing um moments where every person gets up there and is the literally the best singer you've ever I heard I know I know I just thought it yes. was so funny yeah.
1: That was great it's like there's nobody in here yeah. who can't carry a tune right. Like
0: Adam Scott I was all worried when he gets up there and he needs like a triple vodka I'm like oh man he's going to really blow it and then he just has this incredibly unique voice come out of him which is
1: Yeah for the record
0: not Adam Scott it's not actually his voice <laughs>
1: It's not Yeah so they obviously oh, I'm, very- sa- I'm a little sad I to know. hear that
0: they very little, deli- though. Yeah, it was a little I too, thought. um, too different from his voice.
1: <laughs> it I was guess. a little too, yeah, like uh, indie rock, you know, your midnight yeah, indie, yeah. Ro- indie rock show <laughs> on your college station. Uh, he
0: has but I look- like
1: that. It seemed like if the, that guy was gonna sing, that's how he would sound. Right. I, be- I believed it, you know, yeah.
0: I was willing to go along. With he,
1: probably yeah. he probably had a band, he probably had a band in college, yeah, you know, <laughs> with a name that's like an allusion to some poetry book that he liked, you know,
0: yeah. <laughs> But no, I mean, the show, like, that's part of what made it so just kind of addicting in this way where yeah. it's like both hyper entertaining and also very.
1: I just like the I just like the uh, the energy of it.
2: Yeah. And I think a lot of it was so natural when you're talking about the humor, like the big scene where Reese Witherspoon barfs all over the table mm-hmm. and before the barfing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when, she, when she makes pre barf written about on the site. <laughs> where uh, she's like, "Oh, is this Adele?" and and oh like, god, like, I no love that. Day. And uh, Adam Scott's like. She's like, oh, honey, we should get this. And he's like, yeah, we have it. And the, just the look on Reese Witherspoon's face. And it's like a, it's a millisecond. But her eyes just bug out like, OK, buddy, like you can just you you know, the dynamic in that relationship, even if you hadn't seen the whole rest of the show. Just just by the the little look in her eye in that one moment.
1: I, I loved I loved uh, Darby Darby Camp as Chloe. And and so, and she was just so on point, And she was one of those like smart ass kids that you would see in a 1970s movie like quinn cummings and the goodbye girl yeah. or something and so i was kind of like gritting my teeth like oh god not this not the return of this kind of child character please god no but she was so completely awesome
0: yeah jen actually interviewed her and she called jen miss jen the whole time I <laughs> well no, no Ian
2: armitage called me oh ian
0: armitage did That's who right. played
2: ziggy uh darby did not but she had i talked to her for like 15 minutes about her pets she has very interesting names for her pets <laughs> She's very funny. Like she said that she's like, I don't usually talk that sassy to my parents. It was fun to talk sassy like that. It was fun to call Reese woman. Uh,
1: Well, there's a moment where, where uh, my
2: moment in the, in the very beginning in that very first scene when, when Reese Witherspoon, it's in the first episode and she sees the teens in front of them mm -hmm. texting and she's like, I'm not having this, and and they show Darby Camp, and she goes, "They're dead." <laughs> yeah. I like, yeah, I was like, "This show is going to be good. I can tell already." Yeah, <laughs> it really gets you early on.
1: Well, there's a there's a there's a moment where Madeline and Ed are about to have sex in the kitchen, and she comes home and oh, goes yeah. in and opens up yeah. the refrigerator. And and uh, and Ed says oh, you couldn't eat at your friend's house, and she gives him this look, <laughs> this look that's like the one of the best reaction shots I've seen in a very long time. This that, that it's like a withering stare.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. <laughs>
1: and 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 you know, I, I'm not surprised when I see an adult give one of those, but a kid that young to to, to, to give a dagger stare like that is impressive. Yeah, it's impressive.
2: I just love her music knowledge. And yeah it's really amazing, you know,
0: this show has been such a huge success. a I wanted to for hBO and critically, it's been it's been both a critical success and a rating success. And would you guys want a second season? it does It doesn't seem like they're going to have one just because this is a was started as a limited series. Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon produced this series. I mean, it's unlikely that two such major movie stars would do another series of television, but...
1: I uh, hope they don't. You hope they don't? I hope they don't. I think this is fine the way it is. It's fine the way it is, and there are so many shows that should have just done one season. It should have been a miniseries, and they, they kept it going, and it became less special because of that. <laughs> How about you, Jen? Yeah.
2: I, I, I don't think there's more story to tell in that sense, so I wouldn't want a season two. But I wouldn't be opposed to some kind of project where at least a few of these people get to work together again because I just liked watching these actors, the way they maneuvered around each other. And, and uh, I just thought they all had such great chemistry that if there were some other story for them to tell, I would be interested. Right.
0: And, you know, they HBO, not with these women, but they do have a similar project in the works right now, which is a show, a limited series called Sharp Objects. It's based on a jillion Jillian Flynn novel, and it's also directed by Jean-Marc Vallée who did Big Little Lies. Yeah, and it's being developed by Marty Knoxon. So it does feel like we're going to be seeing some more Big Little Lies copycats coming down. Well, great. Adams is going to
2: be in that, I believe. Right?
0: A- Amy Adams is a star. How could I forget? Yeah.
1: yeah. If yeah. you're if you're going to copy something, I would much rather be it be a show like this. I'm just so glad that the that these these all of these actors, but particularly the women, got these parts. I'm so glad that I got to see them play these parts, and like I and I said on Twitter, just you know today, if you took all of Nicole Kidman's scenes out and edited them together end to end and released it as a movie, she would win an Oscar. She would win an Oscar. I I have no doubt. I mean, that's how she's great. She's just great. And and that's the
2: question about this show: is like how are the who do they submit for Emmys? Like everyone, give everybody an Emmy. Like like, (laughs) right. Like
1: Like Oprah, look under your seat.
2: I mean, this year, yeah, it's going to
0: completely disrupt the Emmy, the Emmy Awards. Just having so many kind of amazing actors on television, it's just going to completely change the game in terms of, you know, who is, the, it's just getting more and more crowded, the field of, of contenders. And when you have people like Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman vying for them,
1: sucks to be anybody else. Yeah, well, you know, although as problems, as problems go, that's not a bad one no, to have.
0: It's not, No, it's not. It's not. That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for this week's Aria. This week, it's Matt's turn.
1: A lot of writing about TV is about the characters, the story, the themes. And, of course, you want to know about all of that because most television is literary. It's linear. It tells a story that goes from point A to point B to point C and then ultimately to Z. And then usually the whole thing kind of starts over again at A in season two. Usually. So when you watch TV, of course you're going to keep your eye on all of that and judge it. This subplot isn't working. That monologue was unnecessary. That ending sucked. What happened to the lieutenant? They introduced him with such fanfare and then they forgot all about him. There is no lieutenant. I was speaking hypothetically, but you know what I mean. Housekeeping. Dotting the I's and crossing the T's. There's another way to watch TV, though. Miami Vice came on the air in 1984 and blew the doors off everyone's preconceptions of what television drama could do. It was truly cinematic, often pretentiously so. The music was moody and loud. The actors' shirts, socks, and sports coats were often color-coordinated to match the wallpaper or the sunset. The scripts were often brilliant, but sometimes terrible. Sometimes you had no idea what was going on. And it didn't matter, because this show wasn't literature. It was painting. It was music. I call this kind of series a sound and light show, and I don't mean that pejoratively. There are, or there should be, a lot of different ways to watch TV, to experience TV, viscerally is one of them. As an experience as much as a story, maybe more so. When I watch a series from start to finish, even if I don't like a lot of it, it's because the look and sound of the show are so amazing. I just want to feel the show, the way you feel music. Twin Peaks was like that. When people talk about how great Twin Peaks was, they don't mean that every single episode was great or that every moment was great. In fact, Twin Peaks was really only great in Season 1, in individual scenes and episodes during the first half of Season 2 and in the last 15 minutes of the finale. When people call Twin Peaks great, or when they call other shows that are powered by sound and music and image and color and texture great, they mean the feel of it was great. The vibe of it was great. Big Little Lies was that kind of show for me. Legion was that kind of show. The Girlfriend Experience, Hannibal, even Boardwalk Empire. I disliked a lot of Boardwalk Empire, but I never missed an episode because I loved being in that world. The clothes, the hats, the flapper dresses, the Godfather lighting, the ashy waves of the Jersey Shore coming in. I just loved being inside somebody else's dream. That's one of the reasons I love Big Little Lies so much. The way it moved. The story flashing back and forth, skipping around like a mind racing. Thoughts ricocheting around in a dreaming mind. A lucid dream. A waking dream. The sounds of the ocean. The waves crashing. The look on a woman's face as she thinks about what she's gonna do next. And on the soundtrack, music joining with the images, carrying the story forward in a gentle rising and falling motion, like a wave.
0: That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV Podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our Director of Production, and Andy Bowers is our Chief Content Officer. The Vulture TV Podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellefant.
1: I'm Matt Zoller Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz.
2: And I'm Jen Chaney, and you can find me on Twitter at Chaney J. Thanks for listening.